Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Uh, We're going to cover 14 verses today as we continue this series called All Things New. And today we're going to be looking at the new kind of life we're called to live in society, right? So if if you're in Jesus today, if you've turned away from sin and turned to Jesus as Lord and as Savior, and he's the the boss and the ruler of your life now, he has transformed you. And and we saw in Romans chapter 12 um, this idea of living a transformed life, a, a life lived in light of believing the gospel. And how we are to be renewed in our thinking so that we might live in a way that is transformed and offer all of our life up to God in service. And so for the remainder of the book, for the most part, of Romans, Paul begins to show us what that looks like. And today in chapter 13, we're going to see what it looks like as we live that out in our society. As Christ followers, if you are a follower of Jesus today, what is our responsibility to this world and in this world? We do have one, and some. (laughs) And uh, today we're going to talk about that. So... So let me ask you, think about it this way as we get into this subject. What good is our faith, what we say we believe, if it doesn't change us in such a way that impacts the way we live in our city, in our state, in our culture, in our nation? If, it, if we do not look different than our neighbor, if our neighbor cannot tell there is something different about us than there is even about them, then, then what good is our faith? Why would they want to hear about our faith? right? Why would they want to hear about our faith if our faith doesn't make any difference in our life? I mean, we can talk about eternity, but people are living right now. They, they want to know what difference does it make today? I mean, it's, it's great that you can tell me about eternity, but people don't walk around with eternity on their mind. They got bills on their mind, right? Their mind. They got the, the, the culture war they see going on in our nation on our mind. They got the news on their mind. They got other things on their mind. How does it impact us today? If I came to you and I said, hey, uh, I found this new hair product that is great for your hair. It'll make your hair thick and beautiful and luxurious. Some of you are already starting to laugh, and I don't appreciate it one very bit because <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. And I said, I've been using it for five years. $100 a bottle. I go through a bottle a month. You should buy it. It will be great for your hair. Any takers that would run out and buy that? Have you, uh, those of you that have been here over five, six, seven years, would you say I've seen great improvement in Josh's hair? No, you've seen my hair retreat from the line. It's, it's, it's fleeing the battle quickly, <laughs> right? So children, I think, I don't know. But, uh, but it's, um, you wouldn't do that. But listen, it, we, we get it. Why should society expect to hear a message from us that's, that, that doesn't seem to be having a positive impact? <laughs> on the, they, they wouldn't want to hear it, right? We can poison the well if we're not careful. There's power in the gospel, and, and there's power in the spoken word of the gospel, and nobody can be saved by watching us live a godly life. That can't happen. They got to hear the news. But the news, man, they want to hear it, and they need to hear it from someone who's been transformed by that news. And so let's look at what this looks like in society, living this new life in Christ. Look with me. We're going to take it section by section. Let's start in Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. It's on the screen for you. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore... Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only, excuse me, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So very quickly here, we have moved in Romans chapter 12 from this renewed, transformed mind and life to how we act with one another within the body of Christ and using our spiritual gifts and serving and loving one another. And when we're persecuted, loving and serving others to now here we are with the government, right? And the first principle here about living this life in society is that we need to live as a faithful citizen. That's what Paul's calling us to here. This transformed life uh, involves the citizenship. We're citizens of heaven. We're dual citizens. And we're also citizens wherever we live and we do life. And we need to understand some, some, some things from this passage. We need to understand that government is God's idea. It's instituted, it says, by God. And think about it. If we didn't have government, we would have anarchy. And that's not good in a fallen world with sinful people that do crazy stuff. That would not be good at all. You'd, you'd have people doing anything and everything with very little earthly consequence, except for vengeance, right? And we've already seen what? We're not called to vengeance. We saw that last week. But wait, we see that God has given one the authority to avenge on earth, and it is the government, not Batman, sorry. So, Jesus was questioned in Matthew chapter 22 about government, and a lot of Paul's ideas seems to flow from that. You might remember uh, this story when Jesus, they, they bring Jesus a coin, and, or excuse me, before they bring Jesus a coin, they, they come to Jesus with a question, and they ask Jesus um, about paying taxes, and he's, they're asking him about the relationship with the government and his followers, and should we pay taxes, and what should we do, and right, we're not of this world, right? Your people are not of this world, so, so what are we supposed to do? And, and Jesus says, do you have a coin, right? And so they bring him a coin, and he holds up a coin, and he says, whose picture's on the coin? And whose picture was on the coin? Caesar's picture was on the coin. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God. And everybody went, you know, like, why didn't we ever think of that? And so it'd be like today if I pulled a quarter out of my pocket, right? And we would see the symbols on that quarter or on that dollar bill or whatever I pulled out of my pocket of our government. It's symbols, images of our government. And Jesus's point was, right? There are things that are right for a government to ask of you, and you should render those things. And there are things that are not the government's role to ask from you, and you do not render those things. That our ultimate authority is God. We belong to God. So, for instance, the coin has Caesar's image on it. Ours has usually presidents of the United States, former presidents on it, and the Capitol and things like that. Images that represent our republic on it here in the United States of America. Most nations have something about their government on their coin. But on your heart, on your life, is stamped another image. And it's the image of God. Illustration and his point. Yeah, the coin, it carries Caesar's image. 
but you carry God's. So your ultimate authority, all of what you are is to be rendered to God. In fact, everything we render to Caesar is ultimately, as Christians, it's out of love for God, or it should be, out of obedience to God, as we see here in this passage. Notice in the passage, Paul kind of, he gives us the ideal of what government is supposed to do. And we know in a fallen world that the government doesn't always do what it's supposed to do. There to be a terror, he says, the government, for bad conduct, but not for good. In other words, the government exists to help preserve good conduct in society. In this way, the government is God's servant for my good, your good, our good. In fact, the government bears the sword, Paul says, and has the right to punish lawbreakers. This is for the common good. Now, no government gets this perfect. Every government is flawed. We will not see perfect justice in this world until Jesus comes back, and then we will see perfect justice. We should strive for it, but we can't see it this side of heaven because we're all flawed and all of our systems are broken to various degrees. But a government can be, and we'll talk about this in a minute, outright evil and demand things that we actually must disobey. But what Paul is showing us in this passage is that the posture of the believer towards the government is to be submission. We are to recognize the authority that it has is given by God and therefore our good. We are to expect to, to long to, and desire to, to be able to submit to the government. Taxes go up, we pay the taxes. A new law gets passed, we look to obey it. We submit to the governing authorities. But now listen, but we don't put our hope in the governing authorities. Listen, if we look to a political party, a governmental system, a politician as our hope or our Messiah, oh, things will just get better if so-and-so's in office. Things will always be better if this party's in office. You're in deep trouble if you think that way because they're all flawed and they're all broken. And that's not a knock on political leaders, by the way. We're all broken and we're all flawed. There is no perfect leader this side of Jesus. And that's not the role of government. That's not the role of leaders. Only Jesus can occupy the spot of hope and Messiah and ultimate and bear that weight in our lives. But government and politics are very deceptive idols. And make no bones about it, they can be idols. Giving Caesar more than things that are his is a temptation that Christians of all generations face. Because the larger idols of power, security, manifest themselves in the idolization of politics and political leaders. You see, when people run to, whether it's a party on the right or a party on the left or, 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 or they run to a, a, a president, whether it be Barack Obama or Donald Trump or the one that comes later or the one that came before, when they run to them with all their hope and, and, and they compromise certain Christian convictions maybe on one, on one end or the other, the reason if we do that, the reason that happens is because we're looking for security, we're looking for power sometimes. That's a temptation that everybody faces no matter your political views. You need to know that about yourself. We need to know that about ourselves. And idolatrous hopes in politics manifests itself not only in jubilant hope when people that we root for win, but in crushed hope when they lose. It shows itself not only by too much hope in a leader, but by being too crushed in a leader's defeat. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to submit to the government, don't sell out to the government. Submit to it. Don't worship it. Submit to it. Don't hope in it. Submit to it. 
Don't despair when things don't go as we hope. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved. Listen, the great thing about when you read Romans 13 and living in the United States of America is keeping in mind that our government is unique, right? And that our, that our ultimate governmental authority is actually not even a person. It's a document, right? And that you are a part of the government if you're a United States citizen, right? We the people. It's incredible. It's an incredible thing. And when you read this passage, it's an incredible responsibility, and it calls us not to less involvement, but to more involvement. So don't hear me say disengage by all the means engage. But understand, we are to be faithful citizens and we respect and we honor and we submit and we obey no matter who's in office. But the question does arise, what about when the government becomes a terror to good conduct instead of bad? Because we've seen it in our world and we'll see it again, I'm sure. What about when Caesar begins to go after what is God's? What do you do when they say, to practice your faith is going to be illegal now? Like what Daniel faced in the book of Daniel. Well, we say, you can lock me up or you can let me leave, <laughs> but you're, you're not going to dictate my faith, right? There, there's a line that we have to draw. What do you do if the government was to say, North Park, if you believe and teach the sexual ethics presented in the Bible, and you refuse to embrace secular progressive sexual ethics and a secular progressive view of gender, then we will strip your tax-exempt status, which, by the way, has been proposed by a presidential candidate of the United States of America. What do we do if that was to happen? Because in 10, 15, 20 years, it could. We say, well, number one, that's wrong. Number two, that's foolish. And number three, if you want it that bad, take it. Because Jesus is going to build his church. And what we're not going to do is compromise what we believe for a tax break, right? That's what we would say in that situation. We're going to serve the poor. We're going to champion life. We're going to spread the gospel. We're going to help when disaster, because that's who we are and that's who Jesus has made us to be. But it, we will not bend on what the Bible teaches because we must tell the truth in love. That's what we would do. We, we have no other choice. The disciples the apostles said it this way in Acts 5, 29, we must obey God rather than men. When they were put in a situation where it was the governing authorities or it was Jesus, they went with Jesus, right? <laughs> or it was the, the, the ruling authorities or the Bible, they go with the Bible. And we must as well. With respect, with a Christian attitude, we serve God rather than men. We are to submit to the government not only though, because what can happen if we don't, as Paul says here, but because of conscience. Because we know passages like this teach us we must. We know it's the right thing to do. The Bible tells us so. This authority is from God. And Christians, we've been changed on the inside from rebels to those that long to obey authority. We have been reconciled to the ultimate authority, which is God. And that will begin to show itself in how we respond to lower authorities. Government, the boss, Local government, mom and dad if you're a child, right? It begins to show its, because we're no longer rebels at heart. Yeah, we still struggle and we still struggle, but we're being transformed and we want to honor authority because we know authority comes from God and we want to honor the supreme authority. That's what it means. Paul gives us basic way here to be a faithful citizen. He says, first of all, he says you can pay your taxes, right? 
And we pay taxes because we receive things. We get safety and roads and schools and things like that. We can debate how much the government should do. That's a fair debate to have. We can debate how much taxes should be. That's a fair debate to have. You cannot debate whether you should pay what you owe. That's a Christian responsibility. Notice, not only taxes and revenue, he says give respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Christians have to lead the way in talking about political matters with civility. Our country has lost it, man. It's a hot mess. We don't, uh, you turn on any news channel, and I don't care which one your favorite, favorite one is, I mean, it's just, I've said this before, they are getting paid to make you angry, right? Because then you turn it on and they sell more advertisement. It's, it's a business, so understand that, right? They're not all running around in white hats. It's, it's just the world we live in. I don't mean, there, I don't mean there's not good, honest journalism. That's not, that's not even my point. My point is we need to understand the tension that's being created in our country. Profit gets made off that. We have a responsibility as Christians to be discerning and to know even when if I disagree with someone, I gotta honor them. I've gotta show respect to them. Uh, well, there's a certain amount of honor and respect you owe every neighbor, whether they're in an office or not. But you absolutely owe a certain amount of honor and respect to those that God has placed in authority. Because the Bible tells us it's under his sovereign plan when these things happen. And it doesn't matter if there's a D beside their name or an R beside their name. It doesn't matter. Our nation needs you and me to be faithful citizens that submit in every appropriate way to the government who give what we owe, including honor and respect, because our witness depends on it. And to be quite honest, in a lot of ways, our republic depends on it. It needs us to show a better way when things go crazy. We have to be the cooler heads. We have to be the examples. We have to be faithful citizens. But there's more. Look at verse 8. Read down through verse 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So our second principle here from this passage about living in society is that we must live as a loving neighbor. I'm called to a certain type of citizenship where I live, but I'm also called to being a neighbor wherever I'm at, and I'm called to love. Paul says, don't owe anyone anything except love. Why? Because you can never say, well, I'm all loved out. You know, I loved you on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's the weekend, (laughs) right? On the heels of taxes and revenue, Paul's point is, yes, pay your bills, pay them, but love. Love your neighbor. You see, as believers, we have a new relationship with the law. Paul laid that out throughout Romans. But here we see that we actually fulfill the law and what the law was, the heart of what the law was wanting to accomplish when we love. And he shows us how right there, right? He, he lays out the command here as it's related, your, how's it relates, how we relate to others. Here, neighbor. And your neighbor is, 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 every, is everybody else, right? Everybody, not you. Why doesn't Paul mention here love for God, though, is the question, right? You might think, you know, how do we fulfill the law when we love our neighbor as ourselves? Right, the greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a greater commandment than this one. So why doesn't Paul give both like Jesus did? It's a good question you might ask if you read this passage. And the reason, the main reason here is because true love for people reflects our love for God. 
right? He's assuming love for God, right? No Christian goes, yeah, I don't love God, right? He's assuming that because if we really love God as believers, it's gonna manifest itself in our love for his image bearers. So he says, you know, adultery and murder and stealing and coveting. He gets very specific. He calls these things out. He says, you know, the Ten Commandments says you shall not do these things. And he mentions sins that are related to other people. Do you notice that? That's the only ones he mentions. And the point is is that if we love our neighbors, we won't sleep with their spouses, we won't kill them, and we won't steal from them, and we won't covet their stuff. That's the whole point. Because all of those things are an affront to love. The point is, love for someone is not divorced from moral responsibility towards that person. We can't wrong people in the name of love. Can't be done. That's his point. So if we focus on having hearts that are loved, the other stuff begins to fall into line. Well, how are we to love them? Notice what he says. Is he quoting Jesus? Love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, not easy, Paul, right? That's an awfully high request that you're making and that Jesus is making. See, what they're assuming is that there's a certain amount of self-love that most everyone has as a general rule and general principle. For instance, you want for yourself food. You want for yourself clothing. You want for yourself health. You want for yourself happiness. Those are all natural desires. It doesn't make you weird. It doesn't make you selfish. It makes you a human being that you want those things. That's the version of self-love that we see here. It doesn't make you wrong. It's, It's just normal. Now, People tend to be filled, not just in our culture, but pretty much everywhere, with too much self-love. We make idols of happiness. We make idols of health. We make idols of safety. Because sin distorts our loves and our passions and our desires. And the point is that this love that he's calling us to is concrete. It's a concrete love. It requires doing and not simply feeling. It requires intentionality, not simply. That's the point. It's more than word, it's word and deed, right? See, human nature is we try and pick and choose who we love like this, right? That's human nature. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus having a debate with the law about a guy, and the, and, and the guy, when, when Jesus tells, you know, when he hears he's supposed to love his neighbor, remember the question? The guy says, who's my neighbor, right? I, I get it, love my neighbor as myself. Well, good, good point, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus shares a story. You might remember the story. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, there's a man that's been robbed and beaten and he's bleeding and he's lying on the side of the road. And a priest comes by. Oh, surely this guy will help him. Nope. A Levite comes by. Surely this guy will help him. Nope. A Samaritan comes by. No way that guy's gonna help him. We don't like Samaritans, right? They're not good people. Oh my goodness, it's the Samaritan that helps him. He helps him, he bandages him up, he takes him, he puts up money, he puts him up for the night. And Jesus looks at the guy and he says, who was the better neighbor? Who, who was the real neighbor? The guy says, I'm Samaritan, right? The Samaritan was the better neighbor. So Jesus, but the question was, who is my neighbor? But Jesus' response was, be a neighbor. See, the question was designed in order to to put parameters and put a box around the command so that I can figure out where I have to obey and where I cannot obey this. And Jesus kind of says, that's not how it works. The way it works is you just go be a neighbor. In other words, 
Everybody's your neighbor. Everybody you come in contact with, anybody you come in contact with that's hurting, anybody you come in contact that needs love and compassion, they're your neighbor. You be the loving neighbor. We don't get to pick who to show love to. If we want to love our neighbor, we start with the people next door and across the hall and in the cubicle beside us and those sort of things. We don't get to not love people because they're cruel to us. We don't get to not love people because they have disdain for us. And we don't get to love people because they hate our worldview or think we hate them. Let me give you an example. This would be a love that says to people that I disagree with, right? Maybe over a cultural topic or something like that. Uh, I may disagree with their choices. I may disagree with their lifestyle. I may disagree with their viewpoint on the family. I may disagree with a lot of different things. And it says to them, I still love you and I want to show you I love you because I want to serve you in some way, tangibly. It pursues showing compassion to all people no matter where we might differ. It literally in no way colors that differently and says, well, because you dislike me over this or because me and you are on different sides of this issue or whatever, no. And it's not talking about a feeling in your heart. It's talking about tangible, active expression, first of all, and how I treat that person, right? I don't covet that person. I don't lie to that person. I don't steal from that person. I don't slander that person. I don't gossip about that person. I don't harm that person, but also I'm proactively to be engaged in loving that person. And let me say this. Apart from loving your neighbor, a part of loving your neighbor is more than just food clothing, health, and happiness. A part of loving your neighbor is speaking the truth to your neighbor. See, we tend to say, well, we've got to speak the truth and we've got to love. Bring that under here and it's all love. We speak the truth in love because part of loving someone is telling the truth, right? If all we do is minister to the body and we don't engage the mind and the heart and the soul, then that's not love either, right? And so sometimes we can get so out of whack in, in, our, in our Western Christian culture and so, uh, and so focused on feeding the hungry and clothing the, 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 those that need clothing and, and, being, and, and, and all the issues that, are, that matter and we should do that we feel like a part of love is not engaging in some other things, and being willing to speak to a topic and say, well, it's not just that the Bible says this. This is bad for society. This is bad for culture. And listen, we've got to be the people that are willing to speak out on those issues in love because it's part of loving our neighbor. I heard a story this week. Dr. Jay Strack from right here in Orlando shared this story on a podcast, and I happened to hear it. And it was a story about something that happened in Tampa several years ago, many years ago, four young people who had dropped out of school and they were, um, they were living in a, like a, a trailer together and they were bored because they weren't in school where they were supposed to be and so they decided what they would do is they would go out one night and they would steal a bunch of signs. And if you've lived here a long time, you might remember the story. And one, one guy was a Florida Gator fan, and he found a Gator Crossing sign somewhere, and they, they stole that sign for him. And another one stole a sign that said, um, you know, slow down, dangerous intersection. And he liked that sign. They took that one. There was a girl in the group who was in a negative, bad relationship with a boyfriend that she had just uh, broken up with, and she didn't want that relationship. She was not going back to that no more. So she went and, they went and got her a stop sign, right? Put the stop sign up. Wrong things to do, foolish things to do. 
things that a lot of young people have done. And that night, or the next night, a group of four guys who had been out came rolling up to where there used to be a stop sign, and now there's not a stop sign. They go right through the intersection, as you might guess it, disaster, calamity. Somebody had pulled up the sign, right? And our culture is working very hard to pull down every stop sign, yield sign, and warning sign that's going to lead to absolute disaster. And somebody's got to say, hey, that sign's there for a reason, right? And we've got to be willing to, in love, love our neighbors by speaking out to the culture and saying, this is bad for you. It's bad for culture. It's bad for society. I love you, but this, hey, I love you, but that's bad for kids, Right? And we've got to be willing to speak forth about these issues and not be afraid to shrink back. That is part of love too. But let me ask you, how do you tend to limit the second greatest commandment? Because I think we all struggle with that to some degree. Maybe you limit it by, hey, I'm willing to do the tangible physical things of, of food and clothing and hugs and you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't like to speak the truth in love. Maybe you are all about speaking the truth, but it doesn't seem to be in love because you don't do the other stuff. And your tone's not what it should be. Maybe you have trouble showing love to people that aren't like you, right? What is it? Where where do you, because we all have our struggles, but at the end of the day, love requires both. It requires all of this. It requires sharing truth and showing compassion. It requires loving people like me and not like me. People I agree with, I don't agree with. People that will receive my love, and by the way, people that won't. But that's not all. Last thing. Verse 11 through verse 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Number three, I need to live as an urgent Christ follower. An urgent Christ follower. Paul says, you know the time. It's time to wake up, right? It's it's time to wake up. Why did he say this? Because every day since Jesus ascended to heaven is a day closer to Jesus coming back. And every day you live as a Christian Christian is a day closer to your final salvation where you either go home to be with Jesus or he comes back to get you. So we're to live urgently as people of the day, not of the night. As someone who has passed from darkness to light, who has been born again, who has been made new in Christ, he's saying it's time to live like it. That's his point. And if it was then... Some 2,000 years ago, how much more now? It's time to cast off works of darkness and sin and to put on, he says, armor of light. He gets very specific, right? Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. You might be thinking, well, I'm good there. Quarreling and jealousy. In other words, Paul says, it's time to kill and put away both the sins in your life that can be embarrassing, that nobody talks about, and the ones that are more acceptable that you might do in public. The impolite and the polite sins got to go, is the point. The ones that the church shuns and the ones that the church sometimes sinfully tolerates. Paul says, you got to get rid of that. You got to put that off. We need to what? Put on armor of light. Put on, he uses the phrase, put on twice. 
right? That we need to live like Christ has come into our lives and like Christ is soon to return. That's his point, urgency. No time for games, no time for foolishness. He says you gotta cast off, you've gotta put on. In other words, you gotta strive to be like Christ. But, 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 but as, as one thing I read this week pointed out, it was like, you know, it's not just about putting on Christ. It's not just about striving to exhibit his characteristics in our life. It also, it also points to a closeness with him, right? The clo- it's, it's an illustration that involves clothes and armor. Those things you wear close to you, right? So it's, it's an exhi- it exhibits a closeness. So we're to, to walk close to Christ and we're to live in such a way that reveals Christ's character to others because our character begins to look more like his. Saying, wake up. Wake up, it's time to live for Jesus. Life is short, Jesus is coming back. Now's the time. Notice the phrase, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. I mean, little no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. I think sometimes we, we approach the flesh and sinful desires kind of like a diet, right? When I diet, it's kind of like, I'm gonna try to just cut back, right? I'll, I'll, best thing about a diet to me is cheating. That's the best part right? Cheat day or whatever. That's how sometimes we approach sin. It's kind of like, well, cutting back, right? I don't do this anymore. I'll deal with that later, right? One at a time. I don't do this as much as I used to, right? And Paul said, no, 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 no. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. Listen, we're not going to be perfect, but but that's, that's no excuse to be lackadaisical, spiritually lazy, and take a light approach to sin. No excuse, He says, wake up, you're of the day. Quit embracing the darkness. And the primary way we attack and make no provision for the flesh is by putting on Christ, he says. Staying close to Jesus spiritually, pursuing Christ-like attitudes and behaviors. That is the best guard against the flesh, against your sinful desires. And we're either pursuing Christ's likeness or we are pursuing sinful desires. And we don't drift towards Christ's likeness. We don't drift, as D.A. Carson says, towards holiness. No. We've got a choice that we've got to make every single day. But also, I've got to know myself well enough, if I'm going to make no provision for the flesh, to not give my flesh an opportunity. I've got to know how I'm wired, where I fail, where I struggle, what presents temptation to me that may or may not to you, where I can't go, what I can't do, what I can't watch. Right? I've got to know me, and I've got to govern me. Not you, gotta govern me. And you, we've all gotta take personal responsibility in that way to make no provision for the flesh. Now here's the deal. When you think about this, this text is kind of reveals for us. There, there's, there's no way that somebody can live this way without being transformed. You, you've gotta go from being of the darkness to being of the light. You, you can't put on armor of light if you're still walking in darkness. You can't kill sinful desires and passions if if you're still enslaved to them, if you're still dead in your sin. See, if we want our lives to change, we gotta meet the life changer. We cannot in our own power personally, internally change our lives in such a way to reconcile ourselves to God and make ourselves into who God wants us to be. That takes a miracle called conversion. Only Jesus can change us on the inside. 
I mean, I, I, can, I can transform my character to try to do better maybe, right? I can pull myself up by the bootstraps and say, well, I'm going to try harder to do this. I'm going to try to be a better dad and a better husband and I'm going to try to be a better neighbor and I'm going to try to be a better citizen and I'm going to, and I can try, 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 but only God can change the heart on the inside. And only the gospel is the message that has the power to do that. To make and reconcile us to God. And that's the good news of the gospel is that while, we're, while we fail at changing, Jesus never fails at changing anyone who comes to him by faith. He is the life changer. He's changed me. He can change you. What we all need is that good news of what Christ has done for us and what we couldn't do for ourselves. We're fallen. We are broken. We sin. We fail. Jesus perfect and sinless, lived a life without sin, perfectly obeying God the Father. I can't pay for my sins. I've made mistakes that I can't get back. I don't get a do-over. We've all done things, said things that we wish we could undo. But even if I could go forward from this day forward and never sin again, I would still have an incredible record of 39 years of sin. So I need someone to pay my sin debt and to erase that and give me a record of righteousness. And only the sinless son of God who bled and died on a cross to take the punishment for my sin and your sin, to bear our sin in his body and to be raised from the dead, only he can do that. Only he can do that. Transformation like that from the heart only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. And every single one of us needs to be set free from our sin and brought into the family of God. That is the only way we become people of day and not darkness. See, believers, as those who have been made new, as those who have been transformed, we have to to daily say to ourselves, we have to daily make the choice to engage with our society in a way that reflects that. And the way we engage with the government and politics, the way we engage with our neighbor, and the way we live morally in this world, putting off sin, putting on Christ, these are choices that, that we make that we've been set free in Christ to make, to live out our identity as, as citizens of another land who are in this life still citizens of this one. We should be the best neighbor anyone has. We should be the best citizen the government ever expected to have. And we should live in such a way that is vastly different than those around us so that when we come to them with the good news of the message of what Christ has done for them, they can see the impact that's made in our lives. That we discuss things differently. That we love people that that don't love us back and that we live in such a way that shows we have been set free from sin and made alive to God. Let's pray.